Back in 2019, Maya Kid was spending a lot of time at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. She was working on a film script, but she was falling in love with research. And then comes 2020, and I'm at home, and suddenly I'm watching a film a day, and I'm reading a book a day. And there were all these like disheartening conversations about what black cinema is online. Basically, people were saying that black film was only about trauma. So Maya started a Twitter thread, and when that kind of blew up, she started a website, blackfilmarchive.com. It's an attempt to catalog every black film from 1898 to 1989 that's available to stream. It's kind of beautiful. This week, I'll talk with Maya Cade about her love of black film. But first, a conversation with film scholar Julie Turnock about what makes some movies' special effects seem more real than others. Hint, it's not about quality, it's about style. That's coming up right after this. If you were paying any attention to pop culture at the end of the 20th century, you probably remember that first round of new Star Wars films, the prequel trilogy. The story of Anakin Skywalker, Luke's father, sorry if that's news, Queen Amidala, and so on. You might also remember that a lot of people hated it. They had plenty of reasons. The character Jar Jar Binks, the acting, the clumsy exposition. But there might be another reason too. It has to do with what comes across as real in a movie full of aliens, spaceships, and distant planets. See, when George Lucas was making the original Star Wars trilogy, he created a company to do the special effects. Industrial light and magic very quickly came to dominate the special effects world, which meant its style came to seem normal in movies like Indiana Jones, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, and more. There was a grittiness to the look, and a sense that the camera person was right in there with the action. And then came the Star Wars prequels. They were cleaner, more slick. It's not that the special effects were worse, but they were different from what audiences had come to expect, and that made them seem, well, bad. This at least is the sense I got from reading Julie Turnock's new book, Empire of Effects, Industrial Light and Magic and the Rendering of Realism, which came out earlier this year. Julie Turnock is a film professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and she's made a career of understanding the effects of effects, or how special effects styles shape what seems real. I talked with her recently about where the dominant style came from, what it consists of, and what that means for how we watch movies. Julie Turnock, welcome to Interstates. Thank you very much for having me. So you started out as, a, as an art history major and then went into the aesthetics of special effects. Uh, in both your books, you write about a number of directors who saw themselves in the tradition of the New Hollywood auteur style of filmmaking, which means that they were trying to create not so much the film the studio execs would have wanted, but their own films with their own personal styles and sort of personal expression. And yet, when we think of movies with special effects, we tend to think of big blockbusters, which I would think of as like movies more likely made by committee, which is the opposite of the auteur kind of thing. But one of the things you seem to be saying in both your books is that the development of special effects in the 70s lined up really well with the idea of the auteur as this artist with a specific, unique vision. Uh, so I wonder if you could explain how those things line up. 
Um, yeah, and um, that was a good resume of uh, of my argument. Um, yeah, no, the part of what is always kind of argued by both popular critics and academics as well is that when they talk about what is often called the new Hollywood or the Hollywood auteurs or the Hollywood Renaissance, some people call it a kind of movement that was very strongly influenced by European and, and world um, new waves of the 60s and into the 70s. So the way that that's conceptualized in terms of historians and critics is that this is this great flowering of wonderful new uh, adult um, is, is I put that in word in quotes um, <laughs> Uh, adult filmmaking uh, that is influenced by by Europe and European filmmaking, and it's a more complicated view of relationships and human ways of being. Thomas L. Susser influentially refers to the unmotivated hero, what we today might call the anti-hero, but the idea that there's this, usually a man who is cast adrift and is looking for meaning in his life. And so Five Easy Pieces is a good, strong example of that. And so the way the critics talk about that is like, oh, this is like this great moment where American filmmaking has finally matured. It's like, it's not big spectacles like Ben-Hur anymore. It is uh, smaller films made by filmmakers who care about cinema and care about putting their their own vision of the world out in into their cinema. And then 1975 comes along, which is uh, when Jaws was released, and that all of that crumbles because Hollywood and the corporate overlords who run Hollywood, who, who own the studios, realize that they can make a lot of money from from movies. So in the past, you would get like big blockbusters that would make huge amounts of money. You're Gone with the Winds and and Ben Hur and things like that. But on the most part, most movies were kind of modest uh, modest money makers. But in the seventies, it started to be recognized by the corporate America that had bought the studios in the late 60s and the 70s that, oh, wow, if Jaws can make that much money, maybe if we try to crack the code uh, that that is Jaws, maybe we can, you know, more movies can make more money. And so this is the way that oftentimes this kind of 70s trajectory is characterized. You've got the early 70s with these kind of personal filmmakers and then the mid to late 70s where blockbusters take over and all of that gets swept away. But what I found in my research, especially for my first book, is that not only not only was the case that the filmmakers that we associate with the blockbusters like Spielberg and George Lucas and Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola, not only did they see themselves in the same kind of tradition of the European auteurs as your Hal Ashby's and your Sidney Lumet's and um, Robert Altman, people like that. So they saw themselves in the same kind of light. But... Also, critics at the time, on the whole, received them that way too. So a lot of these filmmakers were received by critics as fresh new voices who were enlivening the studio formulas. And so, for example, Star Wars was, on the whole, better reviewed than 2001 A Space Odyssey by even higher-end critics, not just what we might call the the kind of critics are like go see it don't go see it the um, consumer consumer guide critics we might say, but even the high end critics were saying things like recognizing in Star Wars a kind of a fresh new version of the sci fi serials, and so I wanted to think about what is a blockbuster aesthetic and most film 
historians and film scholars tend to think of blockbusters as an anesthetic. Like they basically are, don't have an aesthetic or, or if they do, it's not anything that's worth, uh, worth concerning oneself with. And for me, it was really interesting to kind of think about blockbusters as a kind of combination, both both in the 70s and more recently, as a kind of combination between the desire for photoreal effects or a photorealism, we might say, looking as if aliens, if aliens invaded our world, what would that look like? And how would that look like when filmed? combined with this kind of spectacular, unbelievable uh, elements and the, the kind of balancing between the two. Part of what you're saying is that they want it to feel real. Right. And so uh, what do they do to make it feel real? Right. Oh, that's my that's your question. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I just want you to explain. I could I could elaborate, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's um, in this in my most recent book in the Empire of Effects. Um, I one of the things that um, that I talk about is the uh, effects company Industrial Light and Magic, which is the kind of preeminent um, preeminent effects company since the '70s. They've done work on all of the you know major blockbusters that you can name of the last you know forty or so years. So you're Star Wars, of course, um, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, the Harry Potter films, the Transformer films, pretty much every blockbuster that you can name, and the first Iron Man and into the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe as well. And so part of what I'm trying to frame is that um, ILM has had such an important influence on the rest of the industry when people try to do something that's a little more stylized, for example, on the whole audiences don't like it. But anyway, so to go back to to what the style, uh, what this kind of contemporary style is that people accept as, as, as realism. In my book, the, I use the example from The Revenant and the bear attack in The Revenant. And so you've got, um, you've got a bear there that needs to look like a real bear. We, we know that Leonardo DiCaprio was nowhere near a bear. <laughs> And that there's no bear on the set. And we should say, just for people who haven't seen The Revenant, the bear is attacking Leonardo DiCaprio. He's in the woods, the character, his character is in the woods. The bear comes up behind him, attacks him, like starts to eat him, tears his... Yeah, viciously, viciously. Viciously throws his body around. (laughs) Yeah, and as I say in the book, it it has kind of the the look of a sexual assault and to add to the um, intensity and uh, the scariness of it. And so for that, of course, you need to have a bear that looks like a bear. It has the weight and movement of a bear that you would expect. Um, and you know, it needs to have fur that moves the way that bears fur that you would expect bears fur to look. And so that that's those are the things you kind of expect. You're like, okay, well, the bear needs to look like it's in the right scale in the frame, and it needs to look like it's heavy like a bear. But that's just the starting point. That is just the kind of basic... Um, the basic expectations that you would have, but what ILM has developed since its um, since its inception is thinking about the way that the camera rec- would record such an event and what the light would look like in the in the event. And so, part of what I w- like to emphasize is that although sure it has some relationship to what the eye sees in real life, really what it's mostly modeled on is how the camera 
would record that. And so and just to emphasize that, that's what makes it yeah. seem real to us is not so much that it yeah. looks like what the eye would see, but that it looks like what the camera itself would see. Yeah. And it's a, it's a stylized version of that, but that is what, um, that is, that is more the reference point than like human experience. And so that scene in the Revenant is shot as if a nature camera person is a heartless nature, <laughs> nature camera person is recording Leonardo DiCaprio being filmed, being uh, uh, attacked by a bear. And so the camera is trying to pick up, like it's, it's missing things. It's, it's, it's a kind it's of shaky. Um, yeah. The bear doesn't stay in the frame always. Yeah. Like sometimes it's too close. Sometimes it's out of the frame. Exactly. And so it's filmed as if the camera person is trying to keep up with the unpredictable movements of the bear. Oh, and then the other thing that I have to bring up first is the lighting as well. Lighting effects are super important as well in creating effects realism, uh, a sense of effects realism. And in the case of The Revenant, you have a kind of tree canopy that has the kind of filtered light that gives a kind of dappled look to the scene. And so it's already a little dark, and that helps a lot in um, disguising the the CGI-ness of the bear. So anytime you can darken the frame a little bit, <laughs> sometimes a lot, sometimes people complain about, oh, there's too many effect shots at night. Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> and um, and so you've got this kind of dappled look. But the other thing is the the uh, it's framed as if the sun, albeit you can't see the sun, but the light, the light source backlights a lot of the sequence as well. And so, again, that gives a kind of camouflaging effect. Right, because the bear, the side of the bear that you're seeing is then in shadow. Yeah, because you get the sense that you're seeing more of the bear than you actually are. You also have this kind of um, dust in the air, these particulates, atmospherics, they call that in the effects business, that also give a kind of texture to the light. And you've got kind of soft shafts of light that are in the background as well. Oh, and I don't think this sequence has this, but anytime you see a lens flare, and you always hear about J.J. Abrams overdoing his lens flares, but it is astonishing when you start looking for lens flares, how frequently one sees them. And in effects work, the advantage to that is that, you know, it is another camouflaging agent, uh, once again, because when the, when the lens flare comes in, your eye is directed towards it, but it also gives the sense that, once again, a camera person is recording it live with their camera. And so it's... And can you just say what what a lens flare is? Ah, yeah. When the light hits the camera lens at a certain angle, you will see a kind of like a, a ball of light in the middle that has... Um, a kind of flaring effect from that kind of ball of light uh, that is usually in in one or the other corner of the frame. And as I say, it's so common that you kind of, one doesn't even notice it anymore. Um, Right. But the viewer can tell that there's, what it emphasizes is that there's a lens between them and whatever is happening. But not just that, it's that a camera person, it's, it's, it's the illusion that a camera person was there filming the scene as if, as if filmed the lens flare and the other kind of as if filmed elements of it give you the sense that that all of this happened right in front of the camera. It's like proving that it all happened in front of the camera because, you know, that's how you get a lens flare is like a kind of spontaneous moment where the the light hits the lens. And even though we know that you can put those in in post-production, 
you know, this is all part of subconsciously giving the sense that all of this is happening in front of the camera for real. That style has a history. That style that we've come to see as like confirmation that uh, something is real is actually a historical style. So in the 1970s, sorry, the 1960s, as part of this kind of Hollywood new wave, one of the tenets of the new wave movement in general was this notion of cinema verite. uh, And that's a documentary style that was popularized in mostly by European filmmakers to shoot documentaries in a way that emphasize the you are there on the groundness of them. Easy Rider is a very good example of this, where um, you have a kind of cinematic style that feels very kind of on the fly and spontaneous, even though there are very skillful cinematographers who are making this effect and filmmakers. And so when Star Wars was being made uh, in the 70s, George Lucas wanted to do it kind of what at the time was a very new style of sci-fi that wasn't shiny and metallic and new looking. He wanted use a used future is what uh, is the, the term he kept using. And he wanted everything to look, um, he wanted things to, to bring this kind of verite look to a kind of sci-fi story and um, a kind of outer space saga. He wanted it to look like medium cool. He wanted it to look like yeah, or Easy Rider, and that have that kind of contemporary. It was a very contemporary look for a kind of long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's like how to bring how to bring it to the mid to late seventies, and and also, you know, spontaneous, but also like dirty, messy. Yes, yes, dirty. Like. Yes, exactly. And so, not perfect, and not you know, so the studio, the studio era was very much associated with everything perfect, every hair in in place, even like ladies who woke up in the morning have a full face of makeup. <laughs> their hair is perfect, that sort of thing. And that was not the look at all that, generally speaking, in the 60s and 70s, filmmakers were going for. And that was very much true for Star Wars as well. And so when they were making Star Wars, and maybe even more so when they're making Empire Strikes Back, which they had a bit more time and could spend more time and uh, thinking about crafting uh, the effects and, and the kind of effect they wanted, They really wanted to have that kind of imperfect look. It's kind of perfectly imperfect is what the emphasis that they're going for. And I mean, and I think it's worth noting that, you you know, as you're saying, it's a historic look. It's not, it's, there's nothing, even though it is meant to be viewed as a kind of naturalized view of, of the world, there's nothing natural about it, (laughs) neither how it's made, nor really the the aesthetic that it's creating, it's a very, you know, you don't see lens flares in real life. You know, you can only see a lens flare through a camera lens. It's time for a short break. We're talking with film scholar Julie Turnock about the recent history of special effects. When we come back, we'll talk more about how this style of special effects has a particular history and what it means when some styles of filmmaking seem more real than others. Stick around. I'm Alex Chambers, and this is Interstates. Welcome back. 
Julie Turnock's recent book, Empire of Effects, is about how the special effects company Industrial Light and Magic created a style that convinced us all that that was what looked most real when it came to spaceships, aliens, and superheroes. Oftentimes, some scholars talk about the history of effects as going from less realistic to more realistic, and I don't really see it that way. I think it depends on the style of filmmaking that that, that, that the producers are wanting to make at the time. In other words, the style Industrial Light and Magic created came out of a particular moment in filmmaking. It's not just, like, natural. It is an historical style, our contemporary notion of effects realism that derives from the 1970s, but it's also cultural and what industrially is being emphasized and being prioritized, we might say. And some of that is just like, oh, well, Roman epics have been hitting, and so we're going to keep making those until another movie is a, is a big hit, and then we're going to keep trying to make those kind of movies. But also culturally, uh, Kristen Whistle has a really uh, great book about the kind of emphasis in the turn of the digital age towards the like the clash of civilizations uh, and movies that like the Lord of the Rings, for example, that have that emphasize uh, that use effects sequences to stage these grand kind of cultural conflicts. And you know, the first Spider-Man came out shortly after 9/11, the first Sam Raimi one, and that superheroes are very attractive largely because they are what can one person do in this terrible world, and superheroes give us a kind of proxy for that. So you teach also, and you teach about this, um, about special effects and film aesthetics. What do you most want your students to realize in your courses and walk away from? That what we take as realism is a very narrowly defined set of parameters. And so when students say things like, oh, the effects in that movie were bad, or the effects in that movie were good, and they have a very kind of commonsensical notion of what that means, that they are actually responding to a kind of dominant mode of image making. And then when something goes against the dominant mode, that could be purposeful. And so part of what I was really interested in in the book was thinking about like, where, you know, where did this dominant expectation come from? And I think I say in the in the introduction, I didn't expect to write a book about ILM, about industrial light and magic, but their fingers are in everything. <laughs> like you start researching and they've been the dominant effects company since, uh, since 1980. And um, they are the biggest uh, effects company. They may not be anymore. But they have been for 40 years. They're, you know, so the longest lasting. There is no effects company as old as Industrial Light and Magic. And so there are some that have been around since the 90s, but none are as long lasting. And so what ILM does, the rest of the industry follows. So I found it like super interesting and, and surprising. Uh, I mean, I was actually surprised at, uh, how ILM's version of realism has dominated the last 40 years in a way that we don't even recognize because we just think it's realism. We just think that even if you recognize that it's cinematic realism, you don't recognize that it's coming from a particular 
you know, set of people. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. What we see real as realistic is coming from a certain set of people. Would you say that these aesthetic decisions about special effects that shape what we see as real, is there a degree to which it also shapes our sense of reality itself? I think it does. I think it's hard to say with a lot of certainty exactly how that happens, but I think it is inevitable that when, you know, because it's not just blockbuster movies, it's also commercials and um, anything with any kind of production value on the internet. And I mean, I had a colleague who was presenting on the documenting of recent social movements. So the, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests um, recent recently. And it was interesting because she showed a video that clearly had received traction because it resembled a movie, like a like a like a blockbuster movie, like it was like a, a one take, but it was like a, um, like sweeping across the crowd in in a really dramatic way, and like it it picked up a person and then it left that person and went to a different group of people, and it was it was it was you know a stunningly made video, but it was it was interesting the way that then like the documentary realism, uh, the verite of the seventies gets fed into the blockbuster aesthetic and then now that's what that's what like a real a real movie a real film looks like um uh, yeah and so it's on one hand looks very spontaneous and like oh this is real this is clearly like a real video that was taken but it rose uh in youtube views or whatever in social media engagement because it looked like a movie <laughs> because it looked like our notion of cinematic realism and it was it was really a stunning to me to see that and and I notice that a lot when I see viral videos sometimes it is because they go viral because just intrinsically they shoot something strange or weird or whatever but frequently what it's the ones that then go viral are because they have the right style and that right style is one that is congruent with blockbuster filmmaking. One of the things that I thought was really interesting at the end of your new book was this reminder that this particular aesthetic that shapes what seems real to us comes from a particular perspective. And it was it's kind of invented by a particular set of people, which is to say mostly white, mostly straight, mostly male baby boomers. Then you bring up, you make that point, and then you bring up The Mandalorian, which was Disney's like first really successful streaming series that they managed to make as they after they tried a few different things in the Star Wars universe. And uh, it's been hugely successful. And you argue that part of why people like it so much is that its style is explicitly nostalgic for those early days of George Lucas creating this uh, kind of rough, dirty, you know, very take kind of style. It seems like you have... A lot of affection for those styles, but maybe it's also complicated that it's so successful because of nostalgia. I wonder, like, does it feel maybe problematic also? Like, is there like a Make America Great Again thing happening with The Mandalorian? <laughs> I ask myself a similar kind of question a lot, and I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't know the answer, or I don't feel like... I feel like it's kind of too complicated to say. Uh, I think there is certainly that element in there. And 
part of the way that popular media works is that it's all things to all people. And so if you want to watch The Mandalorian with a Make America Great point of view, you can certainly find plenty of aspects. And if you, and one of the things that Star Wars by the more toxic aspects of the fandom has been criticized for since Lucasfilm was sold to Disney in 2012 and George Lucas is out of the scene is the the idea of like the woke Star Wars business where it's like, oh, they're they're just um, having, you know, female and people of color to be more woke or something. Appease the woke mob. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, And what I think is interesting about The Mandalorian is the way that they have figured out how to straddle that line of providing, and this is like, this is what popular media does. I think it's part of my Frankfurt School uh, training in grad in grad school, where it's popular entertainment tells us about our world, and it may tell us some bad things about our world. <laughs> it may tell us some really interesting good things as well, but. It is showing us our world in a kind of refracted form. And um, and maybe by seeing that, we as viewers can process that in an interesting way, but mostly we don't. Mostly we, we kind of misrecognize it as uh, as either realism or you know, bourgeois realism or, or nostalgia. But the way that the Star Wars, um, especially the Mandalorian, has tried to appease all elements of its fandom is to think about is to think about how the style of the 70s both stands for liberation positive social change stands for social movements associated with that but then also is nostalgic for people's cozy childhood. And I once, uh, I wish I could now, I'm blanking on who who I saw said this, but they describe nostalgia as memory without pain. And I think that that's an apt way to think about how Disney wants to use nostalgia for that kind of purpose. Film scholar Julie Turnock. Her new book is Empire of Effects, Industrial Light and Magic and the Rendering of Realism. She'll be giving a talk on resistance to ILM's standard of effects realism at the Indiana University Cinema on Tuesday, September 20th. You can find more information at cinema.indiana.edu. It's time for a break. When we come back, public archivist Maya Cade on how nostalgia in the early days of the pandemic played into her creation of the Black Film Archive. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. In 2019, Maya Cade was working for the Criterion Collection as an audience development strategist. When she wasn't strategizing audience development, she was at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts researching black film, black TV, black actors. She was collaborating on a film script. Things were feeling right. And then comes 2020. (laughs) And I'm at home and I'm suddenly I'm watching a film a day and I'm reading a book a day. 
that's how I spent my early pandemic when we were really locked down. And there were all these like disheartening conversations about what Black cinema is online. Black films are traumatic, people were saying. They're all about slavery. And there was just people who weren't engaging with films past or really even seeing films present. And I'm sitting here like reading all of these, <laughs> reading all of these film books and like digesting all of this knowledge. And I'm like, you know, thinking back to what my grandmother told me as a child, which is that your gifts are meant to be shared and you don't really know anything until you share it with another person. And that's a long way of saying that's how Black Film Archive was born. In the form of a Twitter thread, I just started threading. Remember, this was that first summer of the pandemic. It was the summer George Floyd was murdered. It was the summer people across the country were protesting racist police violence, documenting a lot of the uprisings on social media. Maya's thread entered that conversation. It went viral, and it led her to start a website, blackfilmarchive.com, a living register of black films available to be streamed. It has stills from the films next to short descriptions that Maya has written. And she knows how to pull you in. Those little snippets made me want to watch every film I read about. So the site took off, and it's set Maya off on a new path. She's now a scholar-in-residence at the Library of Congress. She's received an Outstanding Achievement Award from the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, among other awards. She quit her job to work full-time on the Black Film Archive. And, for our purposes here in the Midwest, she's the Fall 2022 Programmer-in-Residence at the Indiana University Cinema. When I talked with Maya last June, I asked her how she would introduce herself. I am the creator and curator of Black Film Archive. Ever since I was a young child, I've had a deep obsession with cinema. And I'm a very optimistic person. Those are the things that I think anyone should know about me. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. You just brought me to the first thing I wanted to hear about, which was just that you said ever since you were young, film's been really important to you. So um, can you talk about what your childhood relationship to film was? Like, did your family talk about film a lot? You know, I was very much a child who entertained themselves with books and a film. There was like nothing else in my world. I would drag my mom to see the latest whatever. You know, it could be anything from this like parent trap double feature because it was playing the classic parent trap and the newer one. When I figured out that a lot of the films that were coming out when I was younger, I'm 28. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of the films that were coming out when I was younger were like revival or remakes of uh, classic Disney films. I became like my entryway to classic film. My earliest one was watching the older films, like trying to find them the best I could. If the original Parent Trap was playing somewhere, I was ready to go. I was <laughs> I was ready to like drag my mom and I think my earliest experience with translating film was if my mom fell asleep in the theater, she would always ask, Okay, Maya, like, what happened? What did you think about it? You know, did you like it? <laughs> and in that I was finding, you know, kind of my earliest, like, oh my God, this is this language that you have to use to describe film, like that's pretty cool. That's that's pretty that's pretty awesome. Eventually I found TCM and I saw Carmen Jones for the first time. 
Um, Wait, can you just say what TCM is for those listeners who aren't film people? Turner Classic Movies. It is a television station that plays classic film. It could be Dorothy Dandridge, like in Carmen Jones. It could have your Humphrey Bogarts. It could have a day dedicated to Billy Wilder because today happens to be his birthday. So my entryway to black classic cinema was Carmen Jones, this um, Hollywood musical (laughs) starring Dorothy Dandridge. And I was just in awe of how she commanded the screen. Like the songs were like orchestrated around her. And I had seen My Fair Lady at that point. And I had seen other like classic, big musicals, um, Hollywood musicals, but that I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) And so then I just wanted to see more films like it. Maya watched a lot of Turner classic movies and every February she got excited to see the Dorothy Dandridge movies and other big stars of black cinema. That was exciting, but also generally limited to Black History Month. Luckily, she had more access to another historical period in black film. I was really into the 90s, which at that point had just passed. <laughs> but I was really into like the films I missed, but could like gravitate towards. I saw Spike Lee's She's Got, She's Got to Have It pretty young. I saw Crooklyn pretty, pretty young. Um, but those films were more accessible, as you can imagine, I think. When I was able to just go to a video store and buy, because at that point we're going to video stores and buying things, you know, um, it wasn't, not, it, I couldn't necessarily buy classic cinema. So what I was able to like have then was the the 90s films, the 90s independents, the second wave of black independent films that came after the earliest wave of the Oscar Michelle. Maya carried her love for movies into college, Howard University where she had plans to become a journalist. That was just what I was going to do, that you could not convince me otherwise. But her professors encouraged her love of film. She met important directors. Haile Garima, who directed Sankofa, among many other films. Julie Dash, best known for Daughters of the Dust. By the time she graduated, she wanted to be a screenwriter. It was research for a script that brought her to the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, where she discovered her love of research and found the path that led her to create the Black Film Archive. She writes the descriptions for all the films. That wasn't her original plan. I was reading um, a description when I was researching for the website, and there was a description of Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's perhaps most famous film, um, one might say. And, <laughs> and it was like, man throws trash can in a window. Oh, and incites a rice riot. That was the description. And (laughs) it was reading that that I was like, you know what? I have to write every description on this site. Because at a a certain point, I was kind of like, "Um, maybe I can credit the author of somewhere else or, you know. I was just like, no. (laughs) I think that that is quite important because these films have not been collected in one place before. So I was like, "That's that's already a triumph, right? But <laughs> I started reading descriptions elsewhere, and I was like, you know, I think it would almost be a disservice to um, to do so. Can you just say a little bit more about how you feel like writing the descriptions for a Black audience changes them? Yeah, I 
I would say that, uh, hmm. I don't think it changes them, but I think it, for instance, if I use the do the right thing sure. example, I would never say that the, <laughs> that that is what the film is about, right? Like, I think to me, it's a community that comes together and they're banding together to, to protect their community. And they're doing that at any cost necessary. I think it's with the cultural understanding that you have, like moving with cultural competence, I think it's essential to get black people to watch older films. And even if we use the conversation that was happening in June, 2020, there was a lot of discussion about, well, you know, let, we can set the scene. June, 2020, the George Floyd was just murdered. And there were all of these protests that came in the wake of that. And suddenly black people are asking themselves, how does this thing I interact with represent me? How does this television show, um, how does this collection on the streaming service, how does this workplace situation I'm in, how does it yeah. represent me? How, how does it benefit me? How does it protect Black lives? How is it invested in Black lives? So the moment that Black Home Archive, the very first iteration of the Twitter thread came to be, is in this moment where we're, we're seeing that cultural competence is essential to, is, it's essential to getting people over that hurdle. Because I think what was happening is that we're, we're also, if we take the description of the direct thing that I originally said, the trauma, if you will, was the, the central tenet of it. But in the description I gave, it, it's saying that there's more there. It's not just this or that. And it's not appealing to some SEO <laughs> thing that mm -hmm. I think sometimes descriptions or anything that lives on the internet, that's the training, right? But what if the training was, there's not training, but what if the, the whole foundation was just, I want you to watch this. I, you know, and here's the best I can do. Here's the best description I can give you. Maya wants you to watch black film. Now other places are asking Maya to get people watching Black Film, too. One of those places is just down the hill from the radio station. When the IU Cinema invited Maya to curate a series of films, she decided to explore the idea of home in Black cinema. Home has become a place of intellectual battleground. Um, you know, it has replaced office buildings for some people. It has replaced school buildings for some people. It some of us have spent, like our home has been a place that we now see as a place of isolation. She's put together programs that use the lens of home to explore family, ancestry, queerness, the body, and transition. The body as home is perhaps the most challenging one. <laughs> I think the way that Black bodies have been digested in the public media, the way that coming of age for Black women or Black girls is a very fraught experience or can be. 
the ways that if you think of everything from sterilization of Black women in history to street harassment to the fact that Black women are have the highest rates of breast cancer. Like, I think thinking about the ways that at the end of all of the things that you experience, there is a home within yourself and how that is reflected on screen in a way that can translate through programming <laughs> was a was a was an interesting challenge I put upon myself because no one <laughs> no one was like you need these sub themes you know I but I really wanted to do something that was a a true exploration of of home. I just want to end by um, talking a little bit more about joy, because you've talked about how joy is like a part of what has brought you to this. And if you want to talk about it in relation to The Wiz, that would be cool, because I love The Wiz and the music was so important to me. I didn't want I don't remember watching the movie repeatedly, but I listened to the music a ton growing up. Oh, my gosh. The Wiz. OK, this is embarrassing to say. Very embarrassing. But... Early in the pandemic, the thing that was getting me through was watching The Wiz over and over. I mean, I wasn't able to, to wrap my mind around the fact that my relationship to home had to shift. And not just home in, as in the physical place, but like everything I knew about my community, everything I knew about how I could see my family and, and when, and everything was changing. And this film that I had loved since I was a child, that I had gotten a DVD of before I went to college, <laughs> I, you know, had in my home and I was playing it over and over. And it's a film that really thinks through what home means to this person who is longing to go back with some of the best music put to film. Motown to the soundtrack. <laughs> uh, it just is, it's so good. Diana Ross, who was panned when the film came out, you know, people said that she was too old to play this character. Wow. Um, oh, I mean, the film was a commercial failure. It was a m mild critical success, but, um, Yes, it brought me. And that actually, as a um, that, it's part of how you periodized your. Yes, archive, yes, right? that's that's right. So, after the Wiz premiered, and this is a film, if you can imagine, it has the players of the day. It has Michael Jackson, it has Diana Ross. You know, Motown is providing the sounds to this. Everyone is all in. Hollywood is like, okay, if this is a success, we know how to market to black consumers for them to like buy into black film. And when it isn't a commercial hit, <laughs> Hollywood is like, okay, the black exploitation period is over. And these are films that saved the Hollywood system. Black exploitation films were cheaply made. They didn't necessarily have stars. There were stars that were made in the black exploitation market or the black exploitation pictures. And they always, always made double, triple its budget. And they sustained the Hollywood studio system in the early 70s. So after this big budget musical and, you know, has everyone in it, and that isn't a success, Hollywood is something like, 
we don't understand black consumers, nor are we interested in understanding them. So if you notice in the 80s, there is a wave of black independent cinema. And that really is because black directors aren't able to get financing for their stories. And Hollywood is re-interested in black cinema in the 90s. New Line Cinema is behind some of the black films of the 90s that we all know and love. But Spike Lee is an independent film pioneer, sort of out of necessity, right? Like he isn't able to get the funding for his film. So he has to raise the money himself. Yeah, so The Wiz is the marker of the end of Black Film Archive. So just say a little bit about how the archive is really about joy for you. The archive is about joy because I think it negates the idea that all Black films are traumatic. It negates the idea that the Black experience is a singular one. And in the process of not just putting that together, but having others come to that realization is a really joyful one. Maya Kidd wants to share Black cinema with you. If you're in Bloomington, you can do that at the IU Cinema throughout September. She'll be there in person for the last program in the series on Friday, September 30th. listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know, as always, at wfiu.org interstates. Or find me on Twitter at interstatespod. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Julie Turnock, Maya Cade, and Alicia Cosma for putting us all in touch. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to go somewhere and listen to something. listening to a close-up of Water on Rocks, Lake Monroe, Southern Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Riding back at the top of the hunter's moon.